This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical or legal advice. Always follow your local policies, procedures, and protocols when functioning in your respective profession. Additionally, the views expressed by the speakers and owners of this podcast are their own and do not represent the views of their respective employers. Listener discretion is advised. Alert Medic 1 response. Ken, Josh, and Mustafa here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic 1 podcast. Well, Dr. Chismar, do you want to tell us about yourself? What do you want to know? (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to see what he would do. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. What what do you want to tell us? I imagine everyone... Actually, most of our listenership lately has not been from Maryland. So you should probably tell you... Well, thanks for having me on the Alert Medic One podcast. Uh, For those listeners that that may not be local to Maryland, my name is Tim Chismar. I'm the state EMS medical director here. And uh, happy to be here with Ken Sander, Mustafa Sadiq, and Josh Cook. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming out. Well, I know we want to kick off talking a little bit about some of the changes that we've made to the Maryland EMS protocol for next year, go live July the 1st. Um, One of the things we noticed with the treatment of AFib was that there was some confusion around who would benefit from diltiazem and who would not benefit from diltiazem. So I don't know, Moose, if you want to share your experience with how you approach the patient well, I in, think a, that, in rapid AFib. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, I think the book answer would be, are they symptomatic or asymptomatic, right? Are they shocky, not shocky? And we usually treat with electricity if they are. Uh, if, if they have a little bit more of a stable, definitely a more stable blood pressure, we can use some sort of calcium blockade to try to rate control them. Uh, in my anecdotal experience, usually if, if the rate's over 150, that's when I start seeing like really, you know, people not feeling well. Um, although the definition, of course, is any AFib over the rate of 100, right? So Right. Yeah. So, so great points. And some of the things that we've added in are for people to consider, paramedics to consider, um, the possibility that a rapid AFib might be related to an underlying medical cause like sepsis, uh, for instance. And, you know, we can... We can give cardizem and drop the blood pressure. We can shock and then have the person go right back into AFib with RVR. Um, so one of the things early on that we want people to consider is, is this lone AFib? Is this AFib that's likely primarily cardiac? Or is there associated fever, altered mental status with the tachycardia that might say, hey, maybe I need to focus on IV fluids, hydration, um, and go a different direction before I go right to right into cardizem or diltiazem. Cool. Um, but provided that you're getting... You know, there's no history, and again, starting out with a good history, provided there's no history of, you know, that leads you to believe this is dehydration or sepsis or, or some other non-cardiac cause, if that person's symptomatic, they have chest pain, shortness of breath, they're feeling a rapid heartbeat, they might feel near syncopal or pre-syncopal um, in some cases, we want to make sure that we're getting uh, that person some relief, and usually that means controlling their rate. So in general, we try to shoot for a rate, try to get people controlled down into at least the low 100s, 100, 110, and giving small doses of diltiazem to patients who have a heart rate greater than 130 uh, and a blood pressure, systolic blood pressure greater than 100 are some of the changes, some of the clarifications that we've made this year. Um, We would have really, um, 
you know, some patients that were heart rate of 110, they'd get, you know, fairly large size doses of, of diltiazem. And so we're really trying to make an effort to make sure that we're focusing on symptom management from a primary cardiac cause as opposed to just giving the diltiazem because the number's a little bit above the quote-unquote normal. Which could be just a, a their baseline rhythm is AFib and they're just symptomatic from something else that's causing a tachycardia. That's not primary. Yeah, right. Makes sense. Exactly. Cool. So the, the big change is if they have a non-cardiac cause, go after that. If their systolic blood pressure is greater than 100, their heart rate is generally greater than 130, um, they're really at risk for having some symptoms that are caused primarily by the atrial fib. We want to try to control that with cardizem um, or diltiazem. What's next? So uh, one of the big changes that we made is based on the American College of Surgeons and uh, NHTSA guidelines for the trauma decision tree, what um, we call the trauma decision tree, trauma triage algorithm. Um, the national document sort of split up people into red and yellow categories. We thought for simplicity's sake and to sort of minimize confusion, in Maryland we'll preserve the alpha, bravo, charlie, delta categories so that we don't get mixed up with red and yellow as far as our alert system as well in, and mass casualty triage and, and so forth. So the Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta categories are still there, but we've added some clinical criteria, which I think are particularly important. The first one in the Alpha criteria that is, I think is going to make our lives a lot simpler is the focusing on the motor GCS component. So I know, Ken, going back, you probably always focused on, you know, where is this person GCS 3 to 15? And then you're doing the math, carry the one, try to figure out, you know, is this a 13 or a 14, you know, with 13s, 14s, and 15s, um, sort of being the well or less injured patients, and then below 13 being uh, more injured patients. And then we really flipping that paradigm into a binary, can the person follow commands or not? Is that motor GCS score 6, or is it something less than 6? So, if it's six, they, you know, check the box. They're not an alpha. If they're anything less than six, then we're concerned that they may be more seriously injured. So, makes the assessment pretty simple, sir. Can you, sir or ma'am, can you squeeze my hand? If they can't, and they've got a traumatic mechanism that makes sense, they're an alpha. Um, some some other criteria are the age-related blood pressures. Um, so instead of having to just say, you know, this person's over 55 and their blood pressure soft, all the way down in the delta category. Um, breaking that out by age, starting with um, what I'm, I guess I'm really trying to convey is we have age-specific blood pressures that are in the alpha category now based on uh, pediatric adults and, and the geriatric population. Um, so that, that too has been incorporated. Is it uh, related to kind of the uh, blood pressures we're seeing with the TXA protocol that came out or outlines that blood pressure is pretty cut and dry, what we're looking for? So the, the but not the blood TXA the blood protocol. Uh, for the so for the blood protocol, where were you going with that one? Just the how in the blood protocol it pretty much outlines like these uh, age specific blood pressures. Very, and it's very close to that. Yeah, so very similar to that. Okay. Um, but but again, it acknowledges the fact that our geriatric population sort of runs a higher baseline blood pressure. Um, that a blood pressure of ninety or even 100 in a hundred in an elderly person may be low for that person. Um, and we ought to be, you know, setting our threshold just a little bit higher, around 110. I have a uh, question to about make sure. that when you're yeah. done. Sorry. No, sure. Um, so I understand the importance of the, the blood pressure and the map and all that good stuff. 
Um, why isn't heart rate a, a consideration, like a sustained tachycardia for a trauma? Because I always, with my students, use the example of you can have somebody kicked in the abdomen by a horse with a sustained heart rate of 130. And if you go strictly by the trauma decision tree, if you don't recognize what's going on with this person, you could go to the local ED and you'd be wrong, but by protocol, maybe not, you know? Yeah, so tachycardia has been evaluated in some um, some parts of the the trauma treatment, um, I guess sort of some of the some of the trauma protocols in the sense that if the person's in early shock and their heart rate is greater than one hundred nine or one hundred ten, I guess what I would say is the elevated heart rate is relatively nonspecific and there is not enough data to sort of inform that and make that a standout category alpha. But all these things, I think these trauma decision tree, you know, and, and trauma and algorithms really depend on um, the application and you know, in the context of being able to think critically, I don't think that algorithm should replace clinical judgment, which we preserved in category Delta uh, to make sure that people um, acknowledge that this is not just checking the box and applying the algorithm. Um, so it's a great, it's a great question. Did you already mention shock index? Not yet. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, shock index is, is another key component along with the age specific blood pressures. Another very quick and easy rule to remember would be heart rate greater than systolic blood pressure. So the actual shock index in the literature, right, is heart rate divided by systolic blood pressure. Normal is maybe 0.5 to 0.7. 0.7 to 0.9 is sort of an at-risk zone, a gray zone. And then anybody that's 0.9 or 1 and above, we would say, has an abnormal shock index. To make things even simpler and do less math, because uh, we're all fans of doing less math, the if the patient's heart rate is greater than the systolic blood pressure, um, that would be a marker, you know, a marker of shock, and um, make that person a category alpha as well. Okay, I feel like that kind of answers my question too, though. Yeah, but yeah. it yeah, it's, and and you know, thank you, Moose, for reminding me of that because I think the heart rate itself by itself is kind of hard to tie, um, especially if you you know are just taking the heart rate in isolation. But when you're comparing it to the systolic blood pressure, that's um, and not really calculating a shock index, but seeing that it's greater than the systolic, then then that's uh, an important predictor as well. Category Bravo, if you're ready for that one. Yeah, let's do okay. it. Category Bravo, so any wound that um, requires packing or requires a tourniquet um, becomes a Category Bravo. I think that's probably goes without saying. I mean, if you have to put a tourniquet on somebody, you have to pack their wound to get that to the point of hemostasis. Makes Makes a lot of sense. Um, that that would be a, a high-level injury that you'd want to go to the trauma center. So on that, Doc, uh, so are we just considering any tourniquet application as an automatic Bravo, even if it's not an arterial bleed? So say uh, law enforcement applies a tourniquet to a wound prior to EMS arrival. Um, can uh, I'm sure you see it. I see it at work. Um, are we... Just taking that right off the bat and being, okay, that's a Bravo regardless of, like, further assessment. Because I know that the, there's a little gray area on uh, reducing tourniquets, converting tourniquets, and, like, reassessing if it's actually an arterial bleed. And, like, you know, what do we do about that? And so is there any guidance on that? So <clears throat> that's a great question. The With regard to EMS, um, about when this has been looked at, about 80 to 90% of EMS-applied tourniquets were found to later be appropriate. They were either arterial bleed or they required um, surgery very soon after application. I can't say necessarily that I can quote the literature on a layperson or non-EMS-applied tourniquet, 
But I can say that if you applied the tourniquet or Ken or Mustafa applied the tourniquet, our chances of being right about the person's need for the tourniquet are very high. Okay. Um, I mean, eight and nine and 10 are, are great. Uh, I think great odds. Yeah, I, I agree. <clears throat> um, so is there going to be, I guess, any pushback if a provider reduces a tourniquet? So if you were to let a tourniquet down that was applied by a layperson to assess the person, I think as long as you have that capability of making sure that you're able to reapply that, um, that, you know, that would be part of your overall assessment. But I think if your counterpart, you know, your partner had put a tourniquet mm -hmm. on for what they believe to be uncontrolled arterial bleeding, that they couldn't control it through any other mechanism, I probably wouldn't recommend that. Okay. Um, and I think with Stop the Bleed in general, one of the things we forget about early on is that the first step is direct pressure. So if you can get a finger or anything on the bleeding site, even before you get to the tourniquet, um, you know, that's really the thing that's going to matter the most because it's, unless you're practicing the tourniquet all day, every day, mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, the fastest thing you can do is literally to take your glove finger and get on that bleeding site. Let me ask you this. Uh, mm -hmm. Say I have a hand injury. I mean, are we tra I mean wouldn't we triage, isolate a hand, we'd probably triage to like a hand center, correct? Sure. So wouldn't that technically be a gray area? Because they're not technically, I mean, they're a hand center, but from a trauma, are they a trauma center? So hand centers are, well, the hand centers, at least in Maryland, are not trauma centers. Exactly, yeah. Um, so they, their expertise is isolated to taking care of the hand and upper extremity, really elbow yeah. down. Yeah. Um, I just see someone who would be splitting hairs asking you that question. So if you, I mean, if you have a tourniquet and it's an isolated hand injury, mm -hmm. um, that's, you know, again, a great, a great uh, use of the hand center, I think. Yeah. Um, and again, all of these guidelines, if you try to take them in isolation, yeah. um, you can really get yourself twisted up. But yeah. if that person really has single system trauma to the hand and that's what they have, I wouldn't hesitate to take that person to yeah. a, to a hand center. And they shouldn't be worried about getting dinged then. Yeah. No. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, category Charlie. Now. Category Charlie. So one of the great things, wait for it. Don't be don't be too excited over here, Ken. Is uh, if you have a fall patient, you were always taught what? What was a category Charlie? Not to pick on Ken for anybody. <laughs> so what cat? What can constitutes a category Charlie fall patient? Uh, twenty feet or greater, or three times the pediatric patient's height. So you had to remember two things. Right. Well, moving forward, all you have to remember is one number: ten. So anyone that falls more than 10 feet, category Charlie. And again, this is not just things that we dreamed up or thought up in isolation. This is a result of literature review by national experts really distilled down and then put into the, to the Maryland format. Some of the ex other examples of category Charlie, uh, new criteria would be uh, anybody with a seatbelt sign. So not just a uh, small little uh, abrasion here, but the actual bruising um, or actual abrasion across either the chest or the torso. We know that that's relatively predictive of the need for, so definitely for imaging and, and a third of the time at least, depending on where the seatbelt sign is for operative management or at least observation in a trauma center. Um, moving down to category Delta, for children, we really sometimes have a difficult time with ground level falls. Uh, so one of the criteria that have been incorporated is um, if the person if the child falls at ground level um, and they either have significant loss of consciousness or they're persistently vomiting 
or they have a non-frontal hematoma. So bruise in the front, okay, frontal bone really hard, hard to break, but a non-frontal hematoma um, that that child is at risk and would be best triaged as a category delta considering going to the trauma center. With children in general, before, we just kind of parked them all down in the category delta and we said, look, you know, think about going to a trauma center, a pediatric trauma center if they're a kid. What we've done with this iteration of the algorithm, both nationally and at state level, is we brought up specific indicators for kids and put them where they belong in the Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, and Delta categories. So the trauma decision tree is definitely uh, worth a second look. It's been about 10 years since we've gone through it at the state level and since it's been gone over with a fine-tooth comb at the national level also. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Hey, I remember when it was uh, it was changed well, 10 years ago, and that was like life-altering in EMS. Everyone was like, you know, it was a big thing to pay attention to that one because it used to be really convoluted. Like, it was just things all over the place. Mm -hmm. Category Alpha had injuries and mechanisms in it. Mm -hmm. It was just all over the place. Yeah, I mean, the, w the way I try to think about it is, uh, you know, Alpha or the things that I can measure, the physiologic stuff. Bravo or the anatomic stuff, the stuff that I can see. Charlie is the mechanism. Um, you know, what, what sort of mechanistic uh, predictors there are. And then Delta is judgment and sort of the other high risk or at risk factors. Yeah. Not to get off topic, and we will get off topic later, but later, I, I just want to say this so I don't forget. Can we talk about some of the decision making that goes into going to the different echelons of trauma care? Sure. Um, as opposed to just the closest trauma center, no matter what. Sure. But We're going to talk about that later? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, we'll put a pin in that one then. Something I teach my students off those uh, categories is, A, like you said, anatomical. It's physiological science. Yep. Uh, B, bones, uh, breaks, stuff like that. C, cars, crashes. And then D is just your grab bag. We, we teach the very similar where I work with D, we teach D demographics so that you have oh, all Oh, yeah, the, there you go. It's another good you one. Because yeah. you do have different demographics in there. Yep. Cool. It's another I'll, good one. I'll File that one away. It's all in how you remember it, right? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, so another another exciting change, I think, is further defining uh, what constitutes a notification of the hospital versus a consultation. So this works on both sides of the coin. In the past, we've said, you know, you got this priority patient. Uh, you got to consult. You got to get online medical direction. Well, it turns out there are a lot of cases where we have a very sick patient. We have well-written, I think. You guys tell Very me. Very well-written. <laughs> Standing orders or, or offline medical direction or protocols uh, to manage that patient. And there's really not anything uh, that online medical direction is going to supply you with on the way to the hospital that is going to change management. Sometimes there is, right? Uh, sometimes there's not. So what we've tried to do is to carve out those things which are notification. Say, hey, hospital, look, I'm coming at you with a priority one stroke, priority one STEMI. I'll be here in five you know, these are the vital signs. There's really not a lot of question there um, versus a consultation, which is, you know, I have this person, he's, he or she has chest pain, they're hypertensive, but I think there might be some right-sided heart involvement. Do I give nitrates? Do I not give nitrates? Where there's more of a nuanced question. So both for paramedics, the EMTs in, uh, in the field, as well as the docs that are taking the consults, we're trying to really match the consult to when a consult needs to happen when there's a question as opposed to a notification, which is the hospital needs to know because this is a sick patient and they need to prepare. Uh, but there's not really a, a clinical question. 
<clears throat> regarding the management in there. So how would that be handled logistically? So uh, in my agency, uh, we do have a notification channel for each hospital where they have a radio at the charge nurse station. We go to that bank of um, frequencies or channels, and we notify, we say, priority, age, chief complaint, and arrival time. We don't give any vitals over the notification. But then EMRC, which is, for those that not from Maryland, is our console channel. It's a statewide thing that they patch in the hospitals, depending on where you are. Um, that's where you handle your what used to be you had to do your priority twos. We still have to do your priority ones, any consultations, stuff like that. So do you know how that's going to be handled logistically, or is that going to be at the jurisdictional level? Yeah, so what we're, um, what's going to be in there is actually for priority ones and twos and specialty alert patients, those will go over EMRC. Um, those are about 15%, 15 to 20%. The remaining 80% uh, would be at the discretion, continues to be at the discretion of the, the jurisdiction as to how you want to handle that. And that's for a couple of reasons. Um, and. and different jurisdictions, this is a different thing, but in, in many jurisdictions, you're going out of jurisdiction for the specialty center. Um, you may be going out of jurisdiction. And so having that continuity through the EMRC system is important when we're dealing with priority ones and, and specialty center patients, of, of course. The other piece is that we expect uh, the hospitals to review both themselves and, and do quality improvement review to be able to feedback how things are going. And uh, for the consistency, um, running that through the EMRC recorded line is important for the hospitals to be able to access that. As we build this system out, hospitals are able to uh, access their recordings through a web-based software, um, and that relies on the EMRC system. So there are some logistical reasons behind having the, the ones and twos and specialty alert patients going over that system versus the local um, system. But I think the the part about I'm consulting just because the protocol says I have to for this priority one patient, I'm seeking consultation or online medical direction for someone that I really don't have a question about management for, that's the piece that we're looking to, to not have occur anymore. Um, we want, as far as when you seek a medical consultation, if it's asked for in a specific protocol, you know, it says for an ALTI patient or a BREW uh, patient, a, a pediatric patient who, um, we think may have one of those conditions that says consult a pediatric base station. The intent there is to get the pediatric physician online to be able to talk to the family and say it's probably not a good idea to refuse transport. Um, in contrast, that I'm coming in with a priority one stroke. I really don't have any clinical questions. I've stabilized the patient. Really doesn't require a consult. Doesn't require pulling the doc out of a room. Um, we still want the hospitals to notify the doc and notify the team that a high priority patient's coming in, but they don't necessarily have to be pulled from a room and you don't necessarily have to wait for that doc to be online before you can proceed on with your notification. So I may, <laughs> I might just be confused. So how I currently do my consults is I, I very rarely ask for a doc, honestly. I mean, there's very few things in Maryland that we have to consult for. And when we do, they're pretty rare in, in, when it comes down to it. So is there any difference between how right now, uh, for example, uh, last night I uh, had a priority one cardiac eval. A uh, patient was in SVT, self-converted. I didn't end up having to give anything, but it was still a priority one cardiac eval. They had been in SVT prior, and it was notification only. Um, but I still went through EMRC, through the recorded line, but had no need for a doc. Is there, I guess, um, 
process wise anything else anything different that the provider will be doing other than that no so i think i think probably where you might be um sort of wondering is we're in a way memorializing the practices that have evolved over time just like that where you've realized that you don't there is no question there is real really no need for consultation um but the existing book said consult on all priority ones so you know you weren't necessarily asking for that consultation because you didn't need it, but the book kind of said, get the consultation. Mm -hmm. So you had already sort of evolved past that. Okay. So this Um, is just putting it in writing. So for some people like yourself, it may not be a a huge change in practice. Okay. Um, So continue to go down the list. Uh, One of the things that we're adding on a pilot basis is IV nitroglycerin. Um, And two ways that the IV nitroglycerin can be delivered, both on an infusion pump, which we are really hoping will take off and especially in several of the well-resourced jurisdictions that are running a lot of calls Um, and also um, through an IV bolus which several states have done we're not new uh, or novel by doing that but by IV bolusing um, uh, nitroglycerin as well not across the board but these the patients in that would be eligible for treatment under this pilot would be those that are really sick you know severe CHF patients they're on CPAP already um, you may or may not have given them some sublingual before you put the CPAP mask on them, and they remain hypertensive, um, you know, 150s, 160s, 170s. Being able to start that um, vasodilator to work on reducing the preload without popping the mask on and off to give nitroglycerin, which we try to not do, um, is, we think, particularly important. So we're, we're starting this off on a pilot basis, um, and, and our goal, again, is to try to reduce the preload um, and oftentimes really just accelerate what's going to happen once the patient hits the ED, which is let's start them on a vasodilator, reduce their preload. We may be able to eventually wean them from CPAP. Um, Probably not going to go home if they're that severe, but their oxygen requirements and demand might be able to be managed a little bit more quickly. I love that so much. I just, I like seeing these ED treatments come to the field because there's no reason we can't do a lot of it. And it's just, it's cool. You know, it's like really moving EMS into the 21st century, I think. Yeah. And I'm really happy about this. I know my agency is uh, buying into this. We're going to be doing it uh, right now. Sounds like it's going to be the push dose uh, currently while we figure out the logistics of infusion uh, coming. But um, I was saying to, I don't know, I think it was a student recently that more and more we see the ED being brought to the patient side in the field. Um, and we're, coming on par with a lot of like the very like um uh expeditious treatments you know drugs cardioversion electrical therapies um packing uh infusions ultrasound you know there's very few things that i think that um the ed does outside of maybe uh you know a little bit of prolonged management EMS isn't bringing as a whole in the United States to the patient side. Maybe not so much in Maryland right now. You know, we're, we're getting more progressive from where we were before. But as a whole, EMS in the United States is doing all these things, minus probably X-ray. Um, and there's a couple places that do CT out there. Yeah, there's a couple places that do CT. I haven't personally. Josh has thought. I've never thought that was a, a really... Uh, has to be really Each well. Each thing in yeah. EMS, but, um, you know, people are doing ultrasounds. People are doing point-of-care um, 
labs. People are, you know, community health is doing uh, sutures, doing um, fracture settings, uh, prescribing meds. Uh, in the emergency setting, we're doing POCUS. We're doing, it seems like, new meds every year, um, electrical therapies, all that. You know, I, like I said off air, I had a doc t- tell me last night, he's just amazed at how much EMS can do in the field. So, um, and this is just another step in that direction. Yeah, you know? I mean, EMS is, I mean, we're the, the problem solvers, right? I mean, if you present us with a problem, we're going we're gonna to find a way to fix it. And I think, you know, in a lot of cases, we are accelerating that treatment for the patient. I think there is certainly value in continuing to create partnerships. I mean, there are several partnerships in the state, Minor Definitive Care Now, um, Baltimore and, and Salisbury and a couple of places that are doing that. Uh, to be able to do, as you you know, as you say, the, a couple of other things that are not currently in the protocols, but be able to manage the patient outside the hospital. So I think it's a it's a great move forward. So, um, uh, yeah, good. So just a just a few more topics. I know you may want to um, talk about some things that we've updated. We have uh, put ketamine. Uh, we've had ketamine in for, for several years. We put ketamine in for, um, for pain management. It turns out that about 70% of our ketamine use in the state is for pain management currently. Um, we've also put it in there for some painful procedures that we do, that we have to do to people like pace them and cardiovert them. Um, pretty straightforward change, I think. On the pediatric side, in addition uh, to some of the things we mentioned with the trauma decision tree, we have incorporated an age-based epinephrine dosing chart with the hope and the goal that perhaps epinephrine will be able to be delivered faster um, as opposed to sitting there and having to carry the one and do the mental math of, of trying to find out you know, how much epinephrine does this two-year-old in cardiac arrest need. At the same time, we've brought some of the respiratory rates, both in cardiac and respiratory arrest, into alignment with the AHA standards, which would, which I think make things a lot easier. If you're under 13, one breath every three seconds. If you're 13 and older, one breath every six seconds. Um, in the past, there were, you know, the respiratory rates were all over the map, uh, based on a bunch of different tiers uh, of ages. We've added, so a, a medication that served us well, we've added a second indication, uh, tranexamic acid or TXA for postpartum hemorrhage. So obviously our first step in hemorrhage control when we're talking about postpartum hemorrhage is uterine massage, um, making sure that we're supporting mom uh, with IV access. And then if mom remains hypotensive, very similar to trauma within an hour of delivery. So within a, instead of within an hour of the trauma, within an hour of delivery, is when TXA can be particularly useful um, in um, someone who continues to bleed uh, immediately after birth. Um, and I'll highlight that this is likely going to become more and more important, as you were saying, Josh, as we see more deliveries occur outside the hospital. Um, and I don't know whether any of you guys have had the call from a, a home birth uh, that has not gone well, uh, but sometimes you're going to get put in that spot where things are going well until they're not. And who are they going to call when things are not going well? So another tool to have in the uh, in the kit as far as managing these patients who can turn south really quickly. And I think um, in large bup. yeah go bup oh bup yeah so with uh, buprenorphine uh, this is something that obviously has been done in other places as well. It's been done in New Jersey. Uh, Delaware is currently doing it. There are several agencies that are doing it. Um, the key with buprenorphine for those that may not be familiar with it, is 
you want to make sure that the person that you're giving the buprenorphine to is in withdrawal, in some state of an opioid withdrawal. So buprenorphine is a medication we can use to try to help. Um, it's a both a mixed agonist and antagonist at the site where opioids act, uh, basically trying to make sure that we can help that person out of withdrawal. The idea being that if we precipitate a withdrawal with naloxone, patient's really uncomfortable, they're really angry, they don't like us, um, or if that patient presents in withdrawal, um, that's really none of our doing, um, that we can get that person linked to treatment. We can start the treatment directly on scene and then link that person to either a same day or next day clinic appointment. This can be pretty logistically heavy for agencies, so we're starting this out in the counties that have a mobile integrated health program because they're used to doing this work, they're used to linking people to treatment. And frankly, I'm sure that all of you have had this experience. When you get to a scene and um, you know it's just post the naloxone because that's what a lot of these cases are gonna be, people are not necessarily just willing to say, oh yeah, you know, I'll enroll in treatment tomorrow. It takes a little bit of a special skill set, some motivational interviewing to try to get people to say, you know what, I'm gonna listen, listen to what you say, I'm gonna take this chance, I'm gonna take the buprenorphine and, and try to bridge to treatment. Um, and I think a lot of people who may not be running calls actively don't realize that. Um, you know, patients that we resuscitate, um, they're not necessarily happy we're there. Um, but we're going to try to make use of that moment, realizing that we have wildly variable refusal of transport rates, anywhere from 2% in some counties up to 40% in some jurisdictions of patients that receive naloxone refuse transport. So they never get a chance to access the rest of the healthcare system. We are it. We know that those patients also have a significant risk of death um, within the next year as well. So what better opportunity for us to leverage mobile integrated health, start buprenorphine, get the person linked to, uh, to treatment. So will the uh, bup be carried by the, um, the, I guess, non-mobile integrated health portion of the agency? So we're going to carry it to be given possibly after uh, a Narcan such naloxone administration, or is this going to be a mobile integrated health only? We're going to start it with mobile integrated health, but I think we'll be able to learn from our experience as to how it fits. Um, one of the key pieces is not to just have a limited number of sites that have buprenorphine or a limited number of units. It's that that motivational interviewing piece and getting the patient enrolled in treatment is going to take significant time. Um, and I think we're going to learn how to do that effectively in the field. But I think in the meantime, placing that responsibility on the 911 responding unit and keeping that unit out of service potentially for an hour or longer is, you know, is, is going to become a real logistic issue that we would have to deal with. And I think setting it up in the mobile integrated health domain um, that, you know, they're very used to working through and connecting people to integrated healthcare is going to help us learn a lot of lessons that we'll be able to push this even further and perhaps out of the MIH domain. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Can you go briefly through the like protocol process? So say a provider wants to, a clinician wants to, uh, they're interested in a new protocol. Like what's the process for them? Yeah, it's great. So we, um, we have, of course we're a state agency, so we have mm -hmm. forms. Um, but the form, but the forms are relatively straightforward, at least I think, but I'm biased. Um, so we, there's a, there's an online form, um, that essentially asks you to describe what your proposal is and sort of try to provide an evidence base and a needs analysis 
and present that the way that that sort of starts is working with your local medical director. It doesn't have to be your medical director. It can be any medical director in the state um, to present that jointly to the protocol review committee. Um, so one of the, a lot of these protocol changes that I've gone over have started from paramedics who have been out there, they've identified a need and they've worked with their medical director or with a medical director in an adjoining county and they put together a very nice proposal with research and references that say, look, the evidence base supports this. We bring it to the protocol review committee. We beat it up. Everybody's ideas get beat up, including my own, um, to try to find the holes and try to break it and then present that to the EMS board. And if they agree, they we put it in the book. And okay. that, just to clarify, it's protocol not, in a nutshell. Yeah, it's, it, so it's not like an online form you would submit online. You do have to like fill it out and like email it to uh, email that's available, right? Uh, right. Yeah. Right. So there's a there's an email address that's on the yeah. form. Um, mm-hmm. But one thing we do ask is that you involve a sponsoring system medical director um, oh, absolutely. to to try to help uh, facilitate and and really make sure that this is you know the proposal is ready for prime time mm-hmm. when it gets to the PRC. I have a question, a protocol question that I hear a lot in the jurisdiction I work in, and I never really have a good answer for it, so I'll bring it right to the source. Uh, It's not a hard one, I don't think. Um, Throw me me some change-ups here. Yeah. um, A lot of people ask me why um, magnesium is still a consult drug, and I don't have an answer. Well, we've got that right in front of the PRC as we speak uh, for for next year, but... The, um, the reason historically was to make sure that we were focusing on, uh, focusing our attention on nebulized treatment, um, sort of the adage, you know, get the medicine started where the problem is. Um, so getting those nebulized treatments on board and not creating distraction. Uh, but that very point, Ken, has been brought up for, uh, for this next cycle that's coming cool. up. Because a calculated, educa- educated clinician understands prioritization and treatment. So, and right. I think a lot of our per- paramedics can do that. So, so instead of just a, re- you know, a yeah. perfunctory consult saying, look, you know, if the patient has received two or three NEBs and they continue to be symptomatic, this is where you want to start thinking about treatment B, C, and D. Um, clearly, we, the, the benefit of magnesium compared to nebulized bronchodilators uh, is marginal. Um, I mean, nebulized bronchodilators are what we really need to focus on. But if the person is of a certain severity, continue down that road. That's where we're moving. What other drugs require consult? Uh, Verapamil. Yeah, when we uh, have, well, when it's when it's applied, when it's being used, <laughs> verapamil is yeah. not a great drug. Though. I mean, the reason we kept verapamil in was purely for the lone reason that cardizem or diltiazem is is in shortage. Other than um, that, I don't really know much of anything that does anymore. Yeah, I can't think of it. Our, We're our, probably bad our medical director right now, and our uh, state agency have done a great job liberating the uh, paramedic to perform many. Interventions and medication administrations on his or her own. Yeah. Ladies and gents, I didn't even slip him any cash for that one. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> so I, I got a question, uh, kind of protocol-wise. Um, Doc, do you ever see Maryland going to allowing jurisdictional uh, protocols uh, similar to um, Texas? Was uh, Texas I'm familiar with because I was a provider there uh, in years past, and there, there isn't even a state guideline, really, of what the protocol should look like. You decide as an agency what you can provide and the, what your financial and logistical system can provide, and you go for it. Do you see Maryland ever having a form of that? Any, anything is possible, Josh, but that's a, great, that's a great EMS system question. So for those that are not necessarily familiar with the, the background on that, 
Um, you were probably, you may have been told by an EMS instructor at some point in time that you are riding on a medical director's license or you're riding under their license or riding on top of their license or whatever you want to say. In Maryland and most states in the union, that's not the case. Um, you're independently licensed uh, practitioners, uh, professionals in the state, and you're not riding on anyone's license or next to anyone's license. In Texas, things are a little bit different where the EMS system there was set up as delegated medical practice. So you're actually acting as an agent of whoever that medical director is. So the EMS instructors that were telling you that, they would be right in Texas. They would not be correct in Maryland. In order to change that, that would that actually resides in the, in the law or the statute. Um, so you'd have to um, go and change the law. It wouldn't just be a simple submit the PRC application <laughs> and we run it through the committee. Um, and there are pros and cons. I mean, if you want to take a minute and talk about that, there are pros and cons to that. Um, you can get, obviously, on the pro side, you can innovate a lot faster. You can do things, um, you, you know, quicker. The speed is is better. Um, and you can really develop a much closer relationship with the paramedics and EMTs, provided that you've got a reasonable, um, you know, touch point with them, that you're that you're going you know, and seeing EMTs and paramedics every single day. You can't be, as some of the colleagues will describe, you can't be a milk carton medical director and be in a system like that just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, And, you know, for somebody that is really a medical director that's really on top of the evidence um, and really able to critically read and appraise that literature and move things forward that in in a quick fashion, that's a great system. Um, On the flip side of that, there's some risk, obviously, if you have someone who is a little bit behind, a couple steps behind on the literature, um, you can obviously get behind pretty quickly. Um, in a system like Maryland and Pennsylvania and a lot of the eastern uh, seaboard states, the whole idea of the statewide protocol system, as opposed to smaller uh, individualized protocols, was to try to ensure that we're pushing out best practice. And one of the things I was sort of alluding to before was in the multidiscipline group of, of uh, people in your state, your ideas sometimes, which sound great, get kicked around quite a bit, and you're shown the holes very quickly, myself included. Um, so that protocol is tested before it ever grows out the door. So there's that ability, that tension, really, I guess, between how quickly you push an update versus is when the update gets pushed. Um, you know, is it sound and has it been appropriately peer-reviewed, for lack of a better word? I think you see some of that movement in healthcare where for a long time there was sort of an individualized, this is the way I manage AFib or this is the way I manage a TIA. And in the hospital where a lot of movement has gone is is sort of in the direction of clinical practice guidelines that have been time tested and peer reviewed. And it's no longer, you know, okay for me to just say, you know, I want to manage the person this way. Um, I now have to say, you know, I'm managing this person differently than the clinical practice guideline because, um, and articulate that reason. So I, I guess my question or observation is that while that works very well in some locales to push things forward very quickly, it would not fit at least with the general theme in, in broader medicine, not solely in EMS of you know, take the actual medical topic, make sure that it's got appropriate peer review and eyes on. And yes, unfortunately, it does take more time, but focus our attention on trying to accelerate that process without taking the peer review out of it. 
I know that's a long way. Any anything is possible. Yeah. Um, but in most states, you'd have to change law, and you would really have to come up with a theoretic model and explain why and articulate why you think you know that approach should be taken over the other one. Okay. Great answer. Yeah. yeah. I had a listener question from my friend Matt, who you know. Um, <laughs> uh, he wanted to know something to the effect I couldn't get my Facebook to load, my social media to load. Um, something to the effect of where do you see Maryland EMS going in the next three to five years? It's a great question. I thought you were going to give me Qdoba versus Chipotle. No, oh. I did. I did stop at one of those places on my way here, in in inspiration of that. But. No, I think I think that's great. So, um, Maryland EMS, as well as EMS in general, if you take a look, if you haven't a chance to look at this, take a look at EMS Agenda 2050. Um, take a look at the Maryland EMS Vision 2030. Where I think we are we are going to have to really move by necessity is towards more in a direction of problem solving. Right, so we spend a significant amount of our training learning about biology, right? Learning about the actual nuts and bolts of taking care of people. What we have seen, though, is that a lot of times the reason that people fall out, or the reason they call nine one one over and over again, or get admitted to the hospital, they're not always biological reasons; they're social reasons. So I think we're going to be spending a lot more of our time and effort, both educating and training to, and finding ways to address the patient's social determinants of health. And I think we're not necessarily alone in that regard. The rate at which medical knowledge is expanding, I, I think, again, in the, the quote goes something like this. In 1950, it took 50 years for medical knowledge to double. By the time you got to 1981, it was seven years. By 2010, it was something like three and a half years. And now it's probably, you know, the rate at which medical knowledge doubles is within a year. So the idea that we can continue to make, you know, bigger and longer curricula and just try to teach everybody everything we know about medicine is probably not realistic. What we probably need to focus on is the approach to the problem and then adding resources like telemedicine uh, more frequently in um, to be able to help us apply different levels of expertise to the patient's condition. And we see some test beds of that right now, but I think as that expands, we're going to see more of a focus on how do we address the person's social determinants, and how do we leverage technology to help us accommodate this explosion in, um, in medical knowledge that for all of us in healthcare, whether it's nurses, EMTs, uh, paramedics, or doctors, all of us really need to try to grapple with that. I don't know if that was getting to your, getting to your point or not. Sure. <laughs> I thought it was a great answer. Uh, one, well, to answer the question that you had brought up, Cadoba or Chipotle, since a dedicated listener wants to know. Oh, we didn't do disclosures at the start. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I would say, you know, disclosures aside, I think Chipotle all the way. <sighs> yes. <laughs> I would have thought you would say neither. Neither? Honestly, yeah. No, I love great. Chipotle. Oh, wow. And it. then, uh, one other question, Old Bay or J.O.? I think I think I gotta go with Jo. Ooh, damn! I gotta go with Jo Spice. One well, out of two is not bad, Doc. Well, uh, I guess uh, Doc's not gonna get a free uh, tattoo from Old Bay. Oh man! Well, I love Old Bay. You just, you're making me pick. It's like <laughs> <laughs> I'm making me pick between two hard things here. Did you have any other protocol stuff? 
Well, there's always more protocol stuff, but that's the interesting stuff. The highlights, yeah. Ken, do you want to ask your... I think we we skipped over your question first. About, oh, yeah. I forgot uh, about that. It was a trauma yeah. or something? Yeah. So, so, yeah. So, um, I in the jurisdiction I work in, in the area I'm in, I'm very near to a level two trauma center. Now, that said, there's a level one and the primary adult resource center negligible distance away from the level two trauma center that I'm usually closest to. Where do you draw the line other, other than hard, fast things like neurotrauma, where we have a dedicated neurotrauma center? Um, where do you draw the line of when it's appropriate to defer to a higher echelon of trauma care versus going to a level two or even a level three center, depending on where you are. That's a great one. And real quick, this is not a singular issue. I run into this in my agency as well. Yeah. Uh, Because our closest is a level two. It's in county. But we have a level one on both sides of the border or both ends of the border Mm -hmm. in different jurisdictions. And there's there's a battle some days of which one do we pick to go to because it is one of them is a negligible difference. So, so, so what I what I will say is that was one uh, piece of the NHTSA ACS National uh, Trauma Triage Guideline that we did not incorporate. Um, what the national guideline said is that if you have an Alpha or Bravo um, within the something to the effect of within the regional constraints of the trauma system, to try to take those Alphas and Bravos to the highest level trauma center. Um, what I will say and. and like the, the Charlies and Deltas, it was sort of the closest uh, trauma center. What we've historically said in, in Maryland is taking them to the closest appropriate trauma center. The, the word appropriate is very intentional. The word appropriate is in there. It doesn't just say closest for a reason. It's in there to give you a little bit of uh, deference and, and judgment uh, towards making the best appropriate decision for the patient. What I will tell you in general terms um, there, we have hospital systems that are in Maryland and other states, and the hospital systems tell us it's a night and day difference between the Maryland trauma, uh, trauma center survey process and the trauma process in another state. What I'm, I guess, alluding to is that a Maryland level three um, would be equivalent to a higher level of care in, in most other states. Um, and same for a level two. A level two um, again, I, I can't say that it's equivalent to a Maryland level one, but you could hold it up against a level one in many other states, not just because of the survey process, but the requirements for the specialists and the capabilities and the technology to be there in a level two. Um, they are far greater in Maryland for those level twos and threes than they would be if that was just across the border in another state. So I think you brought up a good a good example. Neurotrauma is one where we've clearly historically said there are resources at the level ones or the the park that exists that may not exist um, in the level twos and three uh, level two and three trauma centers. But um, to to answer your question, I think we keep that word appropriate in there to give you some level of judgment. If you know um, and you come to know that all of the patients that you bring in with this injury. Um, end up being transferred out later and you have an equivalent distance to a center where they're not being transferred out, it's, it's meant to give you some degree of judgment. Uh, can you real quick, we, we kind of walked around it, can you talk about the specialty designation process and what that means? Because people don't know what that means. Sure. So uh, there are a variety of different specialty centers, stroke, trauma, STEMI, or cardiac intervention center. 
um, and what there are several requirements uh, for each. Those are actually out listed in the regulation that's um, what's required in terms of on-call specialists, immediately available specialists, technology, um, in some cases research or data shops, um, participation in a registry. For, um, so it is a huge lift for a hospital to come on board as a specialty center. They commit themselves in terms of resources. They also commit themselves to uh, generally every five years a an on-site re-verification of the level. Um, in, in many cases, this involves not just in-state reviewers, but actually bringing out-of-state reviewers who don't who have never worked here, never worked in the center to take an unbiased look at the quality of the care being delivered. And when they go there, they get into individual charts and, and really biopsy the system um, to say, you know, this is a system that is doing well, patients have good outcomes, et cetera. That answer your yeah. question? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And like for the state of Maryland, it's, it's MIMS that has an office that does that. So yeah, um, for each of those designations. No, yeah. Absolutely. I, yeah, I just wanted to bring that up because, I mean, many folks don't even, and we, I don't think we need to get to the granularity of what different levels mean, but maybe that's something we can do for another episode. And it's not necessarily the case. Um, so if you go to some, some other states, there are some states that may choose to have a robust designation progress on process, I should say, on trauma. Um, but the stroke center self, self-designate. They hang out their shingle and they say, hey, I'm a stroke center. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as time goes on, hopefully they morph into having that survey. But at the high level, Maryland designates a variety of different specialty centers, but trauma the, the big ones that you hear about all the time, trauma, stroke, uh, perinatal, and uh, cardiac. Yeah. Um, in that vein, is there any, I don't know if you're at liberty to talk about it, is there any uh, hospitals that are gaining new specialties in the state? So without without getting into individual hospitals, there are several hospitals that are either, that have recently come on board or evaluating coming on board as thrombectomy capable or uh, comprehensive stroke centers. Um, and that's probably the newest wave of uh, new centers. Okay. For trauma, um, these are all set up a little bit differently. There has to be what's called a call uh, for new trauma centers, and that generally occurs every five years where um, essentially a, you can liken it to an RFP process where the state says we're going to entertain applications for new trauma centers, but they don't. that's not necessarily on a rolling basis for trauma. For stroke, Who does that? Uh, does the, that? The board does that, oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, EMS board, gotcha. Yep. So cool. I mean, there's, like I said before, there's uh, so much of an explosion of knowledge. You know that I'll talk all day. But anyway, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of exciting uh, new things coming down the pike. I think that there are there are definitely avenues for us to improve survival from cardiac arrest. That obviously is a small proportion of our calls, but um, both things that we do and things that we teach the the community, both C, uh, CPR and AED, um, and really making sure that once we get to the scene, there are a variety of interventions that we know are helpful and some that are not so helpful. So I think to just go down the cardiac arrest rabbit hole here for a second, people are looking at different approaches. They're looking at, do we change the vector of defibrillation? Um, do we provide uh, double sequential defibrillation, not simultaneous defibrillation? Does that help? Does that not help? That's something where uh, there are experts that are in the pro court, experts in the, that are in the con court. Um, and I think um, along with that, there's a lot of attention to how do we manage the airway in cardiac arrest patients? Do we go instantly to the extraglottic, supraglottic airway um, until we get ROSC or until we have some reason to manage that airway? 
Um, so I think there are a lot of great things we could talk about in with regard to cardiac arrest and cardiac arrest management. Um, and there's a phenomenal body of literature out there on um, what we can do differently with resuscitating um, hemorrhagic shock. I know uh, we're very excited to, to see whole blood make it to the field, and that's made it uh, really, believe it or not, you were talking about across the U.S., 300-some-odd EMS agencies now with whole blood. So I think it's an exciting time um, for a variety of reasons. Real quick, is vector change? Uh, I know we talked. I, I thought that was – is that not this protocol cycle? Yeah, so vector change is something that, that anybody can do now. Oh, good, I mean, you're just good, shifting good. the position of the pads, good. really. Yeah. Okay. Um, good. What's, what's still being debated with double sequential okay. is, um, you know, do you administer – one shock and then a second later administer a second shock and i think the question that people are trying to answer is um are you treating refractory vf where you just can't get the person out of vf at all or are you treating vf um that is recurrent you know so you got them out you converted them um but they went right back into it um and i think the reason that's important to answer the question is you know be able to answer that question ultimately is is it the um, that we're not delivering enough, uh, vol uh, a sufficient number of joules to the to the person, or is it that we just need to be shocking, perhaps more frequently? Um, so there there are still some unanswered questions. There's a great trial out there uh, on double sequential, but I think there are more more trials to come. I think it just says a lot for the state of the state protocols that we don't have a lot of questions right now because if you think back. 15 years there was a lot of discontentment about how things were and now people are feel we're progressive you know i mean they're happy in general i don't i don't go to work and hear people complain about the protocols so for for a statewide protocol system i think we are pretty progressive you got you yeah. guys are you guys are very nice <laughs> uh i mean i i mean i was there 15 years ago as well hearing the same thing uh hearing it from um a mentor of mine who came up through the uh, the Maryland way and when it was like Maryland was the leading um, EMS agency uh, or EMS uh, not agency system system yeah that's right system um, and how it changed between when he got his card and then when he left EMS to go on to other things um, and he had expressed discontent with how he felt like the system had stagnated now this is late 90s early 2000s so it's been a long time since this was felt and when i got into ems in maryland which was 2008 2009 that sentiment was still held that like hey we're not progressing we're not doing anything um but i, I feel as though the past five years i think i'm not trying to nail it down to a specific time <laughs> but uh, I, I really feel like we have kind of turned the corner on this um, and that we do have the ability now as a state to progress things in the direction that is being seen by the quote-unquote progressive agencies across the nation so I mean, what I would say is like the ownership really uh, although yet you know there is a state construct, the ownership really does also fall on the individual clinician. Uh, the example I'll give, uh, it, the reason I brought up the protocol thing is today I was riding along in one of my jurisdictions, and you know a couple people asked me like, oh well, why don't we have this protocol or this protocol? I'm like, you know, if you have something, 
you are empowered as a paramedic. It literally says in the wording, we entertain, all, like, I know, uh, ideas from, it says, like, literally everyone, right? Healthcare providers, e- EMS clinicians, whatever. Um, you Just get a medical director, talk to them, do the work, and submit it, and they'll review it, right? And yeah. um, and that really speaks to the culture that's being, you know, that, well, I think that's always been the process, but the culture of what's being, like, um, you know, uh, uh, developed under your office. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that you're doing is great is getting out and, and riding with different jurisdictions and getting the different experience. But that, as you said, Moose, the door goes both ways. Where if you um, if you have an idea, you don't necessarily wait need to wait for you know one of us to come out and ride with you to express that. So we want you to know. Um, obviously, we want to put it through a scientifically rigorous process. There are a lot of protocols out there that may just not be ready for prime time. Um, and certainly I'm not the lone judge of that. That's why we have a process and we have people from across the state in different disciplines look at it from all different angles. Um, one of the things that's very important for us is not just to be innovative, but when we're innovative, uh, to try to make sure that that innovation is spread across the state and not just isolated individual jurisdictions um, where, you know, I don't think, I don't think any of us think that whether you receive you know, optimal trauma care or optimal cardiac arrest care. I don't think that that should bear that should vary based on which region or jurisdiction of the state that you're in. Um, so, while sometimes it can be a little bit frustrating to to move a statewide system forward, I think that once we get things moving in the right direction, it tends to bring most of the state and the regions up all at the same time. Um, now, we, we do put out a variety of pilots and optional protocols, and one of the bigger challenges. Uh, for all of us, for me especially, is to try to take those options and pilots that are working and say, okay, what's working about that and bring those to jurisdictions that, you know, they weren't in the first round, um, but maybe they can be in the second round or third round. And eventually we bring something that's the best practice statewide. So sometimes it takes a while, as we were talking about earlier, um, but we'll try to, you know, endeavor to move that process as, as quickly as we can and bring everybody up at the same time. Side, side, okay, side note. I did one. I closed out the one that the uh, episode I did. What what day was it? When you can Wednesday last week. Yeah. And then I was critiqued that I did it too fast. So I'm not going to do it this time. You're critiqued. You have I'll close the peer reviewers. <laughs> the peer reviewers critique you. Thank you, Doctor Chismore, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank I'm, you. I'm honored to be here. I appreciate it. I know it's been some time with COVID nineteen. So thank you for having me on. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Alert Medic One podcast. Please uh, check us out on social media, like, review, rate us on your podcast app of choice, and have a wonderful, safe night. And thank you for listening to Alert Medic One. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.